Hey everyone, I'm Jonathan Capehart and welcome to Cape Up. Congresswoman Frederica Wilson of Florida is still angry. Still angry about the conflicting stories about what happened to Sergeant LaDavid Johnson. Still angry about President Trump's call to Johnson's widow and about his attacks on her. I couldn't believe it. I was like, oh my God, this is absolutely insane. And the way they were carrying on, you would have thought that I really had cursed him out, which I wish I would have. Listen to our entire conversation right now. Congresswoman Wilson, thank you very much for being on the podcast. Thank you, Jonathan, for inviting me. (laughs) Well, the last time we saw each other was during CBC Weekend back in October. How have things been since then? Oh, it's been quite a journey, need you ask. (laughs) Quite a journey. Well, you were in the news because of what happened to Sergeant LaDavid Johnson. Talk about what happened to him, but also how long you've known him and his family. Well, I've known LaDavid before he was even born because LaDavid's father, really his uncle that raised him, was a student in my elementary school. Hmm. So I was his principal. So when LaDavid got to elementary school, the aunt, who was then the mother, Kawanda, called me to say that she was going to enroll him in the 5,000 Role Models Project. And it's a project that I founded 25 years ago, earlier than that, because it started in my elementary school. So they knew about it because the father was in the elementary school where the program started. Mm -hmm. So when LaDavid was killed, I don't think people understand how emotional that was for me. I mean, I was grieving just as hard as the family because this was so unexpected and he was such a wonderful young man and the kind of work that I do, we don't have a lot of success stories coming out of the inner city. And the boys who I reach down and pull out of that mire of misery so that they can have success. But it's so many that I leave behind because it's just one program. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's 8,000 boys in that, but they're a hundred more thousand that we could reach. So I was just crushed that that happened to him. And so there you were in the limousine with David's widow and his other family members mm-hmm. when a phone rings. Whose phone rang and when did everyone know that it was the president well, of the United States? We went to the funeral home and when we got to the funeral home, we were on Uh, our way to retrieve the body from the airport. So the master sergeant who is in control of all of the situation when someone gets killed in the army, he said to us, the president is going to call the family. Now he didn't say the president was going to call the widow. He said the president was going to call the family. So when we got into the car, the phone rang and it was the president. So he put the phone on speaker because the mother and the father 
were there, and so was Maisha, who was the widow. And so if the president is calling, he wasn't just calling to speak or to console Maisha. He was calling to console the family. And so she was on the phone, and he was speaking to her. And his tone, the tone of his voice was disturbing. And he said, well, I guess you can say that he knew what he was signing up for, but I guess it hurts anyway. And your guy, your guy, you know, not your husband, because, you know, black people are not supposed to marry. So this was your guy, not La David, because he did not even have his name in any way, shape or form. So that annoyed me. And I said, give me the phone. Give me the phone. So the master sergeant, you know, he was holding on to the phone. And so when they ended the call, she just broke down in tears. So I said, why didn't you give me that phone? He said, he said, Congresswoman, you, you'll make me lose my job. So he said, well, you, what did you want to say? I said, I wanted to curse him out. <laughs> I said, because he should have known better. This is a grieving family, and that's, that, that was so insensitive. Just his tone and his, just the message. He, all he had to say was, I am so sorry. Your son, your husband gave his life for our country. He was a hero. We're so proud of him, and I thank you. And that would have been very satisfactory. So when we got to the airport, and I got out of the car. I was livid. So one of the um, commissioners, the county commissioner, was in one of the cars following. So she ran up to me and she said, did the president call? And, of course, standing next to me was my hometown press. Right. So they said, did the president, she said, did the president call? I said, yes, the president called. He said, she said, what did he say? I said, he was terrible. She said, what did he say? So as I told her what he said, they all heard. So we went to the side of the plane and waited for the body to be removed and everyone was crying and then we had the ceremony and then we got back into the car and went back to the funeral home. And when we got to the funeral home, there was the press waiting. And they ran to the commissioner. And they say, Commissioner Jordan, because she was the one talking about it. She was saying it was horrible. It was horrible because I was crying. So they said, Commissioner Jordan, what happened? What happened? What did he say? So she said, oh, Congresswoman Wilson was in the car with them. She heard what he said, and she said, you know, such and such. So then they came to me, and I told them what he said, and I told them how I felt about that never dreaming that this would become international news. Well, yeah, let's talk about that. Now, you talked about what you thought a president would say or should say to should say. should say to a grieving widow and that what he did say in that conversation was shocking. Were you shocked by the pushback that you got from the president and then from the chief of staff for simply talking about what happened. I couldn't believe it. I was like, oh my God, this is absolutely insane. 
And the way they were carrying on, you would have thought that I really had cursed him out, which I wish I would have. But it was just, so my staff said, the president is tweeting about you. I said, well, what is he saying? Oh, he's calling you wacky. He's, I said, calling me wacky? Why? Because you, what did it say? That I eavesdropped. Right. His, that I eavesdropped on his call. I said, I didn't eavesdrop. I was in the car. My driver was in the car, the man driving the limousine, the mother and the father were in the car, Maisha and the gentleman from the Army. I was in the car because I was a close friend. Mm -hmm. I wasn't in the car because I was in there to eavesdrop. I was in the car because I was with the family that was grieving. Not the grandmother, not the cousin, not the auntie, but me. They chose me to get in the car. I didn't just get in the car. Mm -hmm. They invited me to ride in the car. That's what was so annoying to me. And that's why I started this interview by asking you to talk about the relationship with La David, Sergeant Johnson, because I don't think still to this day many people know that you knew him. You've known the family for, mm -hmm. a, lo for a long time. Now, let's talk about Sergeant Johnson's widow, Maisha, mm -hmm. who is pregnant. That's right. She's pregnant. And she said in one of the interviews that like she asked to, she wanted to see her husband's body mm -hmm. and they wouldn't let her see him. And she said something to the effect of, I don't know what's in that box. And then we come to find out weeks later that Sergeant Johnson's remains, some of his remains were found after he had already been buried as a friend of the family. I would love to get your reaction, but also as a member of Congress, what kind of flags does that raise for you, if any? Well, it raises a lot of flags, and trust me, I'm on top of it. In fact, today, I was on the floor speaking of new information that has surfaced. So it's almost as every other week or so, there's drip, drip coming through the news media from the Defense Department or from AFRICON or someplace about the David. And to me, it's sort of like a cover-up. And from the very beginning, I was calling it Mr. Trump's Benghazi. Mm -hmm. And that took on a whole spin because I was trying to find out why was he separated from the rest of his unit for 48 hours? Where was he? Why did they leave him? And what happened to him ultimately? Why was he found almost a mile away from the scene of the battle? And they keep saying, we're still investigating. I've gone to classified briefings by, by myself. I've gone to classified briefings with the Foreign Affairs Committee. I've gone to two classified briefings with the Foreign Affairs Committee. I've written letters to the Department of Defense. And the only answers I get, and the other members of Congress who are as inquisitive as I am, we're investigating. This is under investigation. However, there are some little tidbits that they have passed on to the family and the family has passed those tidbits on to me. Mm -hmm. Such as you said, you learned some new information. So, what new information? Well, first of all, the body parts that were found were just teeth. Hmm. 
So it was some of his teeth that were found later. And uh, there are ki children who said they found him with his hands bound behind his back and a gaping hole in the back of his head. And this was two days later. Now we're finding that he was alive for those two days, or maybe one of the days that he was captured and that he was executed. And that is extremely disturbing. And I think that the American people need to know what happened to LaDavid Johnson, Sergeant LaDavid Johnson. And I think that his family needs to know what happened to Sergeant LaDavid Johnson. And they're, they're being given classified information that's not matching the classified information that's coming out of the press. So that's very disturbing to them because when they talk to me, what they have been told is totally different from what's being printed in the national news. So at some point, they need to, they have been told that in January, they will be given a report. He had a, an autopsy. We know the results of that autopsy. It is just so devastating that to think that they left him. That's number one. And where did they leave him? Did they leave him on the ground? Or did they leave because he was missing? Did they not know he was missing? What about the mission? Did they change the mission? Why did the terrorists know where they were, but they didn't know where the terrorists were? Why were they riding in a car that was not an armored car? Why were they so exposed to these terrorists when they were told that there were no terrorists in the area? How did all of this happen? They went on a day's trip. Why did they spend the night? They spent the night, and the next morning, they were delayed in Tongo Tongo by the villagers. And see, what this is, the little girls that you hear me saying, bring back our girls, mm -hmm. that I'm infatuated with, right. that it's I have girls. been fighting yeah. with, Fighting, fighting for. for that I've traveled to Nigeria to meet and to hug and to kiss and to love and to let them know that the American people has not forgotten them. The president, the two presidents of Nigeria that I have communicated with about these girls and who's been working and keeping me abreast of what's happening in their quest for finding them, Boko Haram split in half. One half went to join the caliphate with ISIS. And that's who killed the David. So to me, it was so surreal. Here I am traveling to Nigeria, fighting Boko Haram and its mean spirit. They're killing Christians. They're torturing little children they're sending little girls out as suicide bombers. They 
are so vicious that ISIS had to put them in check and say, look, don't do that. They have killed more people than any other terrorist group in the world. So when I'm thinking about how this whole thing merges, here I am fighting for boys in America and fighting for girls in Nigeria, and the two become a nexus and they meet with one of my boys with a terrorist organization that's terrorizing my girls. It was surreal to me. Have you gotten any kind of cooperation or communication with the White House about any of this? Not a word. And I was just in conversation with the Congressional Black Caucus. And we're in the process of writing the White House, the Department of Defense, the Pentagon, the Joint Chiefs, to demand to demand an answer as to what happened to Sergeant LaDavid Johnson. You mentioned a moment ago that in January, the family will be given a report, a report from the, from the, Pen- from the, from the Pentagon and a report uh-huh. about what happened. The whole circumstances everything. about what happened with the unit for, you know, three other gentlemen were killed also. Mm-hmm. So the reason it is so circumspect with him is that he was separated right. from them. And so not only will they be given a report, but the Congress of the United States. So the family and Congress will be given the same report yes. in January. Now let's switch gears. Still talking about particularly the president and this altercation, this fight, he and his chief of staff were waging with you. And to ask the question, it always seems as though the president gets into fights with women in general, but African-American women in particular, when he's not fighting with Black people overall, whether they're Mm -hmm. football players, baseball players, people in Black Lives Matter, you name it. We'd love to get your reaction to just that, this notion that, or disabuse me of this if you don't think I'm right or or that I'm off in thinking that the president just seems to enjoy picking fights with people of color. The president enjoys picking fights with people of color. That is, that is a fact. It, it, I mean, he's proven it. And uh, fights about the least of things. And he couldn't let that go. So he had his poor chief of staff, who everyone had had on a pedestal. He was this four-star general in the White House who was to bring sanity to the White House. And he goes on the air, and he calls me an empty barrel. And this gentleman began to talk about how he had prepared the president to have these conversations with families. And he was talking about how he told the president to say that and that I misconstrued what he was saying and that I was that type of person because he went to an event, the naming of the FBI building, and I stood up and I talked about how I got 
President Obama to write a check for $20 million to build this edifice, and then I took credit for it, and then I just sat down. I was, and they were stunned, just like an, just like I was, just like an empty bag. And this is what uh, Chief of Staff Kelly. This is what was Chief saying. of Cap. Uh, yes, and when they, after he said that, because before that, I was weary of fighting with the president. I said that he was crazy and he needed psychological help. I said that he was bombastic. I said all kinds of things about him. And so we were going back and forth. He kept calling me wacky. And I said, I'm not going to give him a nickname, but there are a lot of nicknames I can give him that I can really think of. I said, but he's crazy and he's bombastic and he was wrong. And my Oshi came on television and she said to the American people that what Congresswoman Wilson said was 100% correct. And... So I wrote a letter to the press and said that this was it. You know, I was this was I was doing no more interviews. I was done because it was exhausting going back and forth with a with a man who whose mind you can't change, who everybody knows that he hates black people, that he hates black women, and that what he was doing was nothing that I could correct. This is how he was born. This is how he was raised. And this is how he is. So for me to keep going back and forth with him was not going to help. So I cut it off. After I sent the letter out, I sat down with my family that evening to watch TV. And I see Mr. Kelly on TV telling the biggest lie that he possibly can about me. And I said, oh, hell no. <laughs> I said, I'm back on the battlefield. I said, oh, hell no. This is not how this is going to end. And Joyce called me and she said, CNN said they're director. coming to yeah. your, yes, my communications director said, CNN said they're on their way to your house. You can either give them an interview. They don't care, but they're coming anyway. And I said, I'm ready. And when they came about this story, about the FBI building in 2000, whatever it was, I wasn't even in Congress when he was talking. So I said, this man is either intoxicated or he's just a flat-out liar. Come to find out, the Sun Sentinel, the Fort Lauderdale local newspaper, had videotaped the entire ceremony. It's amazing to me and amazing to a lot of people to watch you, Maxine Waters, Congresswoman Waters, Colin Kaepernick, I'm leaving out a lot of people, do battle with someone I don't think many people thought they would be doing battle with, at least not like this. President of the United States. President of the United States of America, the highest office in the world. And he is, doesn't even know how to govern. He doesn't even know how to be presidential. He is, I, I've said to my staff, and they've asked me not to say this, but I'm going to say it. I'm, I'm going to say it today. I truly believe as we're speaking that there are scientists in a laboratory studying this man's every move. And when they emerge 
they're going to emerge with a new malady. And it's going to be something like Trump disease or Trump brain disorder. This is not a normal thinking person. He has no heart. He's like the tin man. He has no heart. He has no feelings. And he really has nothing. He doesn't want anything to do with African-American people. Period. Because there have been so many doors open for him to show that he wants to form a relationship with African-American people. And he slams the door. And I can give you one just straight up example. Okay, go go right ahead. Do you remember when he invited all of the HBCU presidents to the White House? Yes. And he made promises to them. And his, as soon as they left, do you think he followed through on even one of those promises? So that was just like a photo op for him. And that would have been the perfect opportunity for him to have made some inroads into the life and in in uh you know operation of African American people. Well, let me play devil's advocate here. So during the campaign, he went to um a suburb of Detroit and gave that speech and talked to African Americans in his speech saying, you know, give Trump a chance. What the hell do you have to lose by mm-hmm. going with Trump? Uh, he went as president. He went to the Civil Rights Museum in Mississippi and gave a speech about about civil rights. Are those n- not two examples of of him reaching out? Are they not credible? And he went to hey, he came to Little Haiti in Miami before he was elected and said to them, "I will be your greatest champion. Vote for me." They voted for him. And then what happened? And then what happened? He revoked. TPS, and it's not even a million people, 800,000 people with TPS across the country, and he revoked TPS. These are hardworking people who have children who are contributing to our society, and he revoked the Haitian TPS. And this is the the, the, the Temporary program? protective status for Haitians who survived the earthquake, mm-hmm. and they have been here in this country. And he said... He talked to them about Hillary Clinton, about how she had come to Haiti and stolen the money. And she, they, she, he sold them a bill of goods, like the money that was coming to the Clinton Foundation to help Haiti. They were misusing it and abusing it. This, this man is, there's something inherently wrong with President Trump's brain. If he thinks that he can survive in that White House, picking a fight with every little uh, criticism he gets, anyone who throws a criticism at him, especially a woman and especially a black woman, then he's going to go absolutely crazy. President Obama was president of the United States, and we all know how many death threats he got. We all know how many criticisms he got. People called him monkeys. They called his wife Everything you can think of. Now, suppose he had picked a fight with all of these people who were criticizing him. That's all he would have done, just like Mr. Trump. So he should sit back, 
look a, turn a page in the history book and say, I'm going to be the president of the United States for all people. Let me study some of these past presidents and see how they handle controversy. And he'll know how to govern and how to be presidential because he does not know. Um, let's talk about the about the Democrats um, and the fact that it looks like the Democrats are on the upswing. Um, the governorships in New Jersey and Virginia went to Democrats after being um, well. New Jersey was held by a, a Republican. Um, mm -hmm. Virginia was held by by a Democrat. And then the election of Doug Jones as the first Democrat elected to the Senate from this reddest of red states, Alabama, mm -hmm. since 1992. Just in general, what do these results say to you as a Democrat about the party's chances going forward and what that says about the, the mood of the country right now? I, I think that uh, we have to look at um, who, who was in the race, first of all. And I mean, this is a pedophile. This is a man who was trolling them all. Roy Moore, and you're talking Roy about. Roy Moore. And you have to be just like way, way, way out there. That, that, that race should not have even been that close, to tell you the truth. But we're talking about Alabama, and we're talking about a miracle that occurred before our eyes because people who never probably voted before because of the same thing that Mr. Trump said, what do you have to lose? And see, black people go to bed at night, and when they wake up, they see the same thing. They see poverty. They see uh, grass uncut. They see jobless men sitting on the corner. They see liquor stores in their community. And so they say to themselves, well, why should I vote? Because when I wake up tomorrow, it's going to be the same. So there's no need for me to vote. But for some reason, this election cycle, they voted more earnestly and harder than they voted for president when o Mr. Obama won. And that needs to be a message to the Democratic Party that if you invest in African-American communities and in their ground game, going door to door, touching families, going to college campuses, you don't know how long I have been fighting for people to realize how many votes are on college campuses. And most of the college children lean Democrat. So this is finally an awakening for this Democratic Party. And they have to understand, I don't care if it's Alabama, Florida, New York, Virginia, or New Jersey, no white Democrat wins without the African-American vote. And None. Well, that's true. And let's drill down and be even more specific, as we saw in Virginia and saw in Alabama, you can't win without African-American women. You cannot win because African-American women are the backbone of the African-American community. In fact, they're the backbone of this country. 
and African-American women determine the success of their children. Now, you think about it. Who put you on the path to greatness? It wasn't your father. It wasn't your uncle. It was your mother or your grandmother. And I can tell you that is in 98% of African-American households because that's the strength of the African-American woman who has carried us on their shoulders for generations. And that's just as true as true can be. Give me your reaction to, you know, when you look at, say, Alabama, and we're talking about Roy Moore and the accusations against him when he was in his 30s dating teenage girls um, and everything else that has come out about him. The idea that a majority of white women voted for him. And so did a majority of white men, both and in both gender groups, with education, without education, um, despite all despite all that baggage he had, they still voted for Roy Moore. What do you think's at work there? I think that especially with the educated white people, it boiled down to keeping a majority in the Senate, and even if it meant keeping the majority with a pedophile, because they want tax. Uh, a tax bill, mm -hmm. and they also want welfare reform, which the president has said he's going to address next. So they were willing to put a pedophile in office regardless of even they knew that he would rape their daughter, their granddaughter, who, I mean, how how gross still that whole one majority in that Senate is what keeps this country in their hands. And the loss of that removed that. And that's why they voted for him. So a moment ago, you said that um, in African-American communities, people listen to African-American women. But in the Democratic Party, up until, you know, at least Virginia, didn't seem like the Democratic Party was listening to African-American women or just African-Americans in general. Going forward, if you had a piece of advice for the party, for the party chair, Tom Perez, or even candidates running around the country for office, what advice would you give them going forward in terms of um, the African-American vote? I would say to them, if you're gonna run in 2018, you need to be in the African-American community now, today. You need to be there, not two weeks before the election, uh, raising your hands, talking about souls to the polls. You need to be there now with a ground game, going door to door, making sure that you hire people in the community to work in your campaign, making sure that you let the community know that you will do what you can to change things for them, to make their lives more prosperous, to provide them with jobs and access to childcare and access to uh, better schools and better roads and everything that you possibly can do. But don't wait until the day before the election. And the national party the National Democratic Party needs to fund those efforts 
in the African-American community beginning in January in preparation for the election in November. Otherwise, they're not going to make it. And see, you can't win an election by talking about Mr. Trump because people still get up and they see the same thing. Just this what we were talking about right, before, whether right. Mr. Trump is in there or whether he's not. So you have to go into the community and make a difference and make them see that if you vote Democratic, your lives will change. They call it a better deal. Mm-hmm. You'll have a better deal if you vote with uh, the Democrats this time. That's that's what needs to happen now. So I can't I, I can't be here with you in your office and not ask this question. And it's the last question. The red sequin cowboy hat. What's the story behind that? <laughs> Why the red one? Yeah. Why the cowboy hats? Because oh, I know there the must there, there must be a, a, a well, there's a story there. Well, the hats. Um, I started wearing hats since uh, a little girl because my I'm Bahamian. Mm-hmm. So all the women in the Bahamas wear hats when I was growing up, hats and gloves. So my grandmother, whose name was Frederica, uh, her children didn't wear hats. So they skipped a generation and she was just so happy that I wore hats that she would dress me like her. Uh-huh. So I grew up as a little girl trying to be prissy and, you know, all of this with my grandmother. And um, so I just kept that going. In fact, when I was in middle school, Davy Crockett was famous. And I had a Davy Crockett hat in every color. Oh. (laughs) And so the dean of the middle school, and we used to call them junior high schools, Mm -hmm. the dean of the junior high school called my father. And he said, we want to have a conference with you. So my daddy came to the school and they said, well, Frederica is wearing these Davy Crockett hats. I had a a pink one, a red one, a yellow one, a white one, and had a little tail hanging out. (laughs) (laughs) So my daddy said, well, is it affecting her grades? Um, Is she misbehaving? Is she playing hooky? You know, playing hooky back then meant you didn't come to school. That was bad. So they said no. So he said, well, what's the problem? He said she just loves these hats, and I, we bought them for her, and she wants to wear them to school. So w- what is the problem? What to Tell me how it impacts her learning. They didn't have an answer, so I continued to wear my Davy Crockett hats. <laughs> David Crockett, hat, Crockett hats then, cowboy hats now. Congresswoman Frederica Wilson, the great state of Florida, thank you very much for being on the podcast. Oh, thank you so much, Jonathan. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And how about doing me a huge favor? Subscribe, rate, and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ. Hello, I'm Dan Lamoth, a national security writer here at The Washington Post. I'm the host of our newest podcast, Letters from War. It's the story of a family of brothers fighting in World War II. It is told mostly through the hundreds of letters that they wrote to each other. The letters detail everything from the Great Depression 
to their favorite baseball team, the Chicago Cubs, to the horrors of combat that they themselves saw. In this podcast, modern-day veterans will read the parts of the brothers. And at times, they will relate their own experiences to what they're reading. Check it out on WashingtonPost.com slash Letters from War. The Washington 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 Post. Post.